0: Welcome back to Ruining Your Childhood. This is Sarah. I'm Kirsten. This week we're going to talk about Home Alone. Uh, all of them, kind of. Not all of them, all of them, because there are actually five movies. If you didn't know that, but I'm talking about the first three mostly, because the last two are like made for TV, and I just I don't have it in me to to care
1: about. <laughs> How many times can a child get into trouble when they're left at home by themselves?
0: Yeah, well, and, like, the, you know, Macaulay Culkin's only in the first two. And before I get too into that, a huge disclaimer, because I'm about, I I really have a lot of negative things to say about Home Alone, but I wanted to, uh, disclaim that I love these movies. I grew up with them, and I love them, but I'm about to tear them apart.
1: (laughs) Tear it up, tear it up. Uh, this is, like, our, the, the running disclaimer for all of our Christmas episodes is... We love everything about Christmas. We love this stuff, but there are problems with it. Like, yeah. That we need to call out. And then it's fun to call out. But after this, I may watch Home Alone 1 and 2 because those are the ones I care about. But, yeah. Even with the ruining, they're still fun to enjoy. Like,
0: right. And like, the whole purpose of this podcast is just like overanalyzing things we love so it's not that we don't love them it's just that we're going to pick them apart and be really particular about it
1: that's all (laughs) we have fun doing that to everything so
0: yeah it's like it's like how um someone will say they're a star wars fan and then like talk shit on star wars for like an hour star wars fans love doing that and and or, or like how, uh, you know, someone could be a Harry Potter fan and grew up with that and we'll be like, well, you see, uh, the goblins are a Jewish stereotype and uh, Cho Chang is a racist character and, you know, all those things.
1: Right. And they're all true, but we still love it at the end of the day.
0: Right. Because it's like very ingrained. Oh, and not to mention that J.K. Rowling is uh, a little um, garbage.
1: Before we knew that, we still had valid complaints with the series
0: right yes yeah it just makes it a lot easier to rip it apart his now. name is snape <laughs> <laughs> yeah i have a lot of complaints with Snape. oh but we'll 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 get we'll, we'll cover save that.
1: it we'll save um, it um
0: yeah we'll, we'll do a whole series on harry potter sometime well. and have a lot of fun doing it we'll uh probably reread the books in the process <laughs> i'm actually uh listening to the the fourth book on audio like a little bit every night before bed to kind of get me in the bedtime mood like a like a little kid that's how I fell asleep for like a,
1: a whole year when it actually came out my mommy used to read it to me and my siblings every night before bed that's how that I too. read all of the Harry Potters is by having them read to me by my mommy <laughs> I still say that my my mom's Hagrid voice was better than the actual actor. I I still hear Hagrid as my mom. So, oh, that was so cute. <laughs> she had like a very, very good Hagrid impression.
0: Like what accent did she give him?
1: Uh, it was sort of like a gruff kind of Scottish accent, but like like if you could imagine a Scottish hillbilly, it was that. <laughs> and I loved it. And I still You know, I it. feel like
0: People in like the Scottish Highlands are probably the hillbillies of the UK. Uh, don't come for me if you live in the UK, and that's <laughs> not a correct take. Uh, I say that with love. Uh, <laughs> but but speaking of Harry Potter, this that does relate to this because the Home Alone movies, the first two at least, were directed by Chris Columbus, who directed the first two Harry Potter movies, uh, which are actually my favorite of the harry potter movies so i i'm a big fan of chris columbus for that reason
1: um let me go off on a tangent here but i love his actual directing style i love the like warm tone that he puts in movies that make them just feel like cozy and pretty i don't love all of his choices but i really like the tone of his movies specifically the like warm bright colors a lot dig it
0: yeah i love that too like because that's the thing I love about the first two Harry Potter movies is that it's it just it's it's warm and that's why I watched those those movies at Christmas time, along with the Home Alone movies, which also have a very warm tone. And they also have a very magical realism kind of thing. But that is actually that might be the John Hughes influence, because this these are also John Hughes movies, which I didn't know. And I'm not a big Hughes head or anything. But obviously this guy was pretty big in the 80s and, you know, he started out with the National Lampoon movies, but then he really, his real claim, not that the National Lampoon movies weren't incredibly well loved and everything, but I think the thing people most associate John Hughes with are his coming of age movies, particularly The Breakfast Club, Sixteen Candles, uh, Pretty in Pink, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, I could go, you know, I could go on. And then of course Home Alone, which I didn't really associate him with at first, but uh, now I do, um, because I always I always associated Chris Columbus with it, and I was like, it's a Chris Columbus movie, because in my mind, I always get, like, directors and writers and producers all kind of, like, it all kind of met- blends together. <laughs>
1: right. Executive producers and writers don't get a lot of love from anyone.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's just People, there's a big focus on just, like, the director, but... You know, aside from being known for coming-of-age stuff, there's also generally an element of magical realism in his movies. And so that's kind of a nice vibe for a Christmas movie. And as you may remember from the Home Alone movies, there's, you know, the whole element where he kind of wishes his family away and they actually, like, go away. So it feels magical to him, the eight-year-old, even though that's it wasn't magic. It was that they overslept.
1: Right. But it, like, I think when you're a kid, it feels like that could happen like you could potentially wish your family away
0: yeah there's there's always a big uh, be careful what you wish for kind of thing that I think a lot of kids uh, are told a lot including Kevin
1: Kevin is told that directly I think that's an actual quote from his mom
0: yeah or because I rewatched the beginning part because I wanted like some clarification on something earlier today and what she said what what Catherine O'Hara said I love her by the way I don't love her character I, I got problems with Kate McAllister but Catherine O'Hara I love dearly um, we and all what she said yeah we're Schitt's Creek fans over here but what she said was say that again it might just come true and he did and he you know went and kind of wished it in his head but I'll get to that I'll get to the plot in a minute but it made million at the box office, making it the highest grossing live action comedy movie ever until it was surpassed by none other than The Hangover Part 2.
1: Wow. I (laughs) I cannot (laughs) believe that it was that long before anyone surpassed it. I guess Christmas is just a good time to go to the movies.
0: It is. And this is like family movies, I feel like always do well at the movies.
1: Right. Because. You don't want to take your kids to Hangover Two, but you do want to take them to Home Alone.
0: <laughs> yeah, and then you're taking the whole family, and then it's a bunch of, you know, little bodies, big money.
1: Right, asses in the seats.
0: Yes. <laughs> mm. I was about to say, tell a Harry Potter story again because I was going to say when, when my family went to go see the midnight premiere of, uh, The Chamber of Secrets. It was so packed in that theater that I had to sit in my mom's lap. So at that point, it's it's too many asses double
1: asses in the seats
0: <laughs> double asses <laughs> it's-
1: that's what they say whenever i sit down <laughs> <laughs> that's me on an airplane is double asses.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, uh. <laughs> so another thing i didn't know uh it was Nominated at the Golden Globes for Best Musical or Comedy. And it was, Macaulay Cock himself was nominated for Best Actor, which I always think it's very cute when like little kids are nominated for Best Actor or Actress. At that is award cute. Shows. And then it also got an Oscar nomination for Best Original Score, which, by the way, was composed by John Williams. I was
1: going to say, I knew this. I love the works of John Williams, and I'm like a huge fan of all of his scores. Yeah. But I always say that like John Williams scores are probably the most well-known music in the whole world because they're universal to all of his movies and they're recognizable. Like people have probably heard John Williams more than they've heard The Beatles just because he's done so many of the most iconic movies of all time and he has such recognizable scores he's he
0: did jaws didn't
1: he he did jaws he did jurassic park he did (sighs) like basically every steven spielberg movie and home alone with that magical little kid christmas carol song
0: oh yes that is oh it's such it's a really good christmas song kind of on its own so I, that's that's something I often add to, you know, when I'm making my Christmas playlist on Spotify every year, I kind of add it just as a, not as a movie score, but as a Christmas song of its own. But speak, speaking of John Williams, I was just thinking today, actually, about how this one time... uh My stepsister was saying that when she gets married she wants to walk down the aisle to the Jurassic Park song and how she wants to do this specifically is you know how in that song the music kind of builds and it's sort of slow and ominous at first but then once you see the dinosaurs it picks up and it becomes like this very triumphant music. That's the part where she walks in and everyone stands up and looks at her.
1: I love it. I love it. Like that's (laughs) An amazing idea. Uh, oh, uh, can her husband or partner say clever girl at the end? Yeah. That would be. Uh, do,
0: you, do you now take her as your clever girl? Ah! <laughs> it do it. Uh, but yeah, so Home Alone is a very successful film franchise and it had four sequels, two of which were made for TV. So. Eh.
1: One of which uh-huh. is very good. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> well, I later I'm going to um, provide you a defense of the third one because uh, I did watch that one, rewatch it because I actually did watch that one a lot growing up. And um, was it your I favorite ha- one growing up? It. I don't know if it was my favorite because it's almost it feels like a different franchise. It doesn't feel quite the same. It is still John Hughes, but it's not Chris Columbus.
1: Colin and I get into a fight every single Christmas because Home Alone 3 is his favorite Home Alone, and it's a pretty uh dividing event when we put <laughs> on one of the Home Alone movies in my house.
0: <laughs> controversial. Uh-huh. Well, you know, I can respect that opinion because as we'll see, I think there are some very redeeming qualities about it that are different from the other two. And I shall defend it a little bit. But yeah, only the first two have the same original cast starring Kevin. And so I'm going to, you know, like last time, I'm going to read a little bit of the plot and then, you know, and then we'll pick it apart and then I'll read a little bit more of the plot. And we'll pick it apart again. The family of eight-year-old Kevin McAllister is preparing to spend Christmas in Paris, gathering at his parents' house on the night before their departure. Kevin, who is the youngest sibling, is the subject of ridicule by his older siblings, Buzz, Jeff, Megan, and Linny. Later, Kevin accidentally ruins the family dinner and their flight tickets to Paris after a scuffle with Buzz over cheese pizza, resulting him getting sent to the attic of the house as punishment, where he gets angry at his mother and wishes that his family would disappear. The family oversleeps the next morning and scrambles to get everyone ready to go. In the confusion and rush to get to the airport, Kevin is accidentally left behind. He wakes to find the house is empty and thinking that his wish has come true is overjoyed with his newfound freedom. So, yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about the McAllisters first. Uh, let's
1: talk about where their source of income is coming from because <laughs> I don't know how in the world they afford all of the things that they have.
0: Yeah, well, so for one thing, how are they getting that many people to Paris? And it seems that something that I forgot about until I rewatched it is that the dad's brother lives in Paris and is flying the whole family there. So his brother has got to be really rich. Is That's his brother like the, par-
1: like the the Paris equivalent of like Elon Musk? Because flying that many people and some of them fly first class the, the parents fly yeah. first class that's a lot right? of that's a lot of uh plane ticket money to just throw down for christmas
0: it is and in the second one not to get too ahead of myself but in the second one kevin's dad is the one flying them all to florida so it's not just paris uncle that has money the whole family seems to have money except for the the brother that's there from uncle Ohio. Frank.
1: The, uncle Frank, which uh, the asshole uncle.
0: <laughs> yeah, he's awful. I hate him. Uh, actually, I hate most of the adults in this movie and some of the kids too. It takes a lot for me to, you know, hate Catherine O'Hara even if she's, you know, an unlikable character. But in this movie, ooh, she angers me. But yeah, they're obviously loaded. There's no indication of what any of the adults do for a living, and it just it doesn't make any sense. But also their house oh my God, like they have this huge, beautiful old home. And in my research, I came across a Vice article by Miles Karp called An Exhaustive Analysis of the Iconic Pizza Scene in Home Alone. And, you know, I recommend reading that if, of course, you want an exhaustive analysis of the pizza scene. I um, do,
1: so I will read this.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it is a good article. And, you know, it, it does more or less what our podcast does and that it picks apart things that no one asked to be picked apart. But, you know, still it's fun.
1: Obviously, I'm way into that sort of thing. So, yeah. <laughs> thank you for doing the work
0: there. I was excited when I found it. But what I learned from that article is that the exterior shots of that house, they use this house that is in Winnetka, Illinois, which is the wealthiest town in the state of Illinois. Uh, so, I hate it yeah, so much right already. Far. And so, they, they say it takes place in Chicago. And this is, I guess, a suburb of Chicago, so it's part of the greater metropolitan area. But it's not really Chicago, Chicago. And actually, Winnetka is referenced in a book called Savage Inequalities by Jonathan Kozol, which, uh, as the article says, was a landmark text on education policy that highlights the huge disparity in education quality between rich and poor areas. So Winnetka obviously being the uh, one of the rich places where there's really good educational outcomes for their students. Life is good for the McAllister's, you could say. So you're telling me pretty-
1: that even though all of these McAllister kids go to the best school in the state of illinois that buzz is still this much of a dumb asshole
0: yes (laughs) yeah he (laughs) good education
1: can't buy you class that's uh right
0: (laughs) and it can't buy you a functional family or you know therapy apparently like you think they could afford (laughs) some therapy to make them less obnoxious but most john hughes movies take place in chicago or the surrounding area but also most of them are suburban and very white
1: i was gonna say ferris bueller is like a suburb kid who goes into the city a very rich suburb kid who goes into the city for the day that's the whole plot of ferris bueller
0: pretty much obviously chicago is not a fully white place there's a significant black population there's a significant latino population but you don't see any of that in any of his many films that take place in Chicago. Most John Hughes protagonists are rich and suburban.
1: Except for Pretty in Pink and like that's a huge plot point is that she's not rich and she's like this sad little poor girl who wants a rich boyfriend. So
0: hmm, I've never seen that movie. It's not good. I've seen it like twice.
1: I don't love it. It's like very. I've only seen it twice so I'm not uh, extremely familiar and I'm just saying it from like what I remember but I remember like hating how she was like a sweetheart from the wrong side of the tracks like I hate that fucking narrative so much anyway so
0: Mm. I kind of want to go on a John Hughes deep dive because I want to be able to criticize him better it makes me feel like an asshole because he's dead uh, but like not beyond criticism
1: well nobody's beyond criticism and like obviously when he was making movies it was a very different uh america he was making them for so we can definitely trash the like excessive 80s all we want i think
0: yeah well i also read in the wikipedia article that molly ringwald is his quote-unquote muse which made me want to barf (laughs) like that gives me weird vibes all around
1: well that that makes the dialogue from the breakfast club when they like sexualize molly ringwald way grosser
0: oh yeah that's 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 real nasty uh (laughs) coming written by john hughes not into that so much but yeah so in addition to being rich and suburban they're also all john hughes protagonists are white like that i can't think of a single i'm trying to even
1: like think of a like a background character who is a person of color and i can't think of any well and and considering
0: that when you look at chicago chicago is a very segregated place. Like there's a lot of de facto segregation there. And there's an article I read by Wet Moser for Chicago Magazine titled Chicago Schools for Blacks the Most Segregated in the Country. Basically what that says is that Chicago, well there's there's a lot to the article and talking about how Chicago schools in particular are segregated. But what I learned from that article is that Chicago has a dissimilarity index score of .79 for black white dissimilarity and what that means is that 79% of the population would have to move in order to achieve even racial distribution. Holy and shit. And that's the highest in the country. It's higher than LA, New York, Detroit, it's the highest. And it's also the highest in the country uh for white latino, black latino and asian latino dissimilarity. So Chicago is a very segregated place, and these are recent statistics. So pretty safe to say it was also pretty segregated uh, in the 80s and 90s. And so when you take all that into consideration, (laughs) uh, John Hughes' version of Chicago is a very specific version.
1: Right, and so it's, like, accurate that kevin goes through his whole time alone and never sees a person of color like he probably wouldn't in his little white suburb where everyone's
0: segregated yeah like so yeah in a way it is accurate but uh it's it's unfortunate
1: yeah i'm I'm saying it's it's not a good thing but it is unfortunately pretty accurate that he has never experienced people of different races
0: yeah, and so um it it does it does ring true to the a lot of the like really wealthy sh- suburbs of Chicago. But also it's interesting that he always picks except with the exception of Pretty in Pink, he generally makes his protagonists pretty rich and then the issues they face have to do with other things and it's less like existential like I I'm the you know the protagonist being poor or anything like that so yeah it's just a it's just a hallmark of John Hughes movies and the other thing I want to point out about this point of the plot is that the McAllisters are pretty pretty dysfunctional and basically I think Kevin's family is emotionally abusive towards him a kid isn't wishing his family away if he feels he is safe in his home right and
1: it's it's like because he is One of the youngest in the family, he becomes such a punching bag. I come from one of these huge families. So like the Christmas scene from the first Home Alone, when they're all in the house and it's extremely chaotic, that is my Christmas, like very much. Like I come from a family, my dad has four siblings. They all have like huge batches of children. So there's always a lot of us in the house and it is chaotic like that, but we're never openly bullying anybody. Like that's I i like the like chaotic energy, but usually it's the older ones I feel like who who uh deal with more because they're obviously they have like different responsibilities, but they're all so shitty to little Kevin and I I don't get it.
0: Yeah that's kind of I think Not that this kind of thing doesn't happen in real life, but it does seem like, generally speaking, which of the order of siblings uh, has it the worst? I think older siblings do have a lot of responsibilities put on them, and almost to an unfair amount uh, compared to younger kids. But in this situation, everyone is just dunking on Kevin, specifically.
1: (laughs) Uh, I do remember, so watching this movie, I always really related to the oldest cousin who does like the head count, where she's like behave like she's counting the heads and she's like just cooperate and let me count your heads that cousin was me and my my i have a second another cousin who's the same age as uh, as me and we are the two oldest so we were always like the the head counter cousin who gets really annoyed
0: with all the kids (laughs) (laughs) So, (laughs) so maybe there is a little bit of that in this movie where like everything's kind of put on to the oldest cousin and actually that cousin in the movie is uh the college age daughter of the uncle that lives in paris right she's so- the paris
1: the paris uncle's kid who's like in america without her family which would suck
0: yeah yeah uh, my family moves to if... paris
1: they better take me that's all i'm saying oh
0: yeah like don't leave me behind <laughs> like i don't care if i'm in school i'll go to school in paris
1: right take me to paris school
0: <laughs> i'm sure it's cheaper <laughs> so sad uh, yeah and so He gets blamed for everything, and his older brother, who is significantly older than him, Buzz is a teenager, whereas Kevin is eight. Buzz is very mean to him, which is, in some ways, normal older brother stuff, but then Kevin reacts in a very understandable way to his brother being an asshole, and it always goes bad for him, and the family's like, why'd you mess everything up, Kevin? And Buzz always gets off scot-free, and so... Right! Nobody ever says shit to Buzz! Right, and I think that is... That's the defining thing of what makes that, like, toxic and, and bad is that, you know, siblings pick on each other. That's fine. But then, you know, the family sees this happen. And then when Kevin reacts badly to Buzz picking on him, they're like, like, what the hell, Kevin? Like, it's it's almost a
1: could, this, could you say this is gaslighting? Yes, I think so. I think it's like pretending like there wasn't anything to react to. Like, right continuously telling kevin that he's overreacting and underselling the way he's being treated by buzz i think would count as gaslighting
0: yeah and this happens in the sequel too where um at the beginning they're at a christmas pageant for their school and apparently it's all the grades together for some reason and so buzz is standing behind kevin and they're all holding these fake candles and while kevin has this big solo so he's singing in this you know lovely soprano voice and buzz is behind him holding the candles behind his ears like making him look goofy and all the adults in the audience are laughing at him which for one thing screw those adults that's awful his
1: his parents join in on the fun instead of being like buzz cut it out you're ruining this christmas program like you're making what should be a nice program into something that's uh hurtful to our son kevin who we should be sucking up to because we left him at home
0: last christmas right yeah he should be going to one of his teachers and saying hey my parents went on vacation and left me behind by myself and then they should call cps and get him out of there because obviously those parents are negligent but no and then with the christmas pageant he starts shoving and everyone gets knocked over and so there's this big thing where buzz formally apologizes to the family and is like sucking up to them and then he turns around and whispers to kevin you know something rude i forget what and then uh kevin's like i'm not apologizing he's just lying and sucking up to you guys and then everyone's like oh kevin why'd you ruin christmas and it's just ridiculous so frustrating
1: buzz is like extremely hateable like oh yeah every everything that he does like like infuriates me even watching them as an adult i'm like yeah i i actually watched home alone pretty recently and i was like how as a parent are you okay with what he's doing like you you does anyone hear him when he says i guess somebody's gonna have to barf it all up and then fakes pukes like yeah that's
0: gross like as as a parent behavior just be like, you are what? Like, he's probably somewhere between 14 and 16 in the first movie. That's he's too old to be doing that. And so at some point you need to be telling him, uh, stop that and yeah. be nice to this eight year old. And, and that that's kind of the thing is that Kevin is being expected to respond maturely as an eight year old to this juvenile bullshit, whereas his teenage brother is allowed to goof around and do whatever he wants. And his mom sides with him and there's no consequences.
1: Yeah, it's, wow, if if you were Kevin McAllister as a kid, like, that would feel like your family didn't care about you at all.
0: Yeah, like yes.
1: Like, it would just feel so isolating to feel like you don't have an ally, because not only is Buzz mean to him, but his other much older siblings, again, who are old enough to know better they're all in cahoots against kevin like yeah. the the thing that the sister says when she's or i don't know if she's a sister or cousin because it's kind of blurred but when she's like yeah you're what the french call les incompetents and it's like first yeah. of all not very good french little miss but also <laughs> uh like is everybody hate this
0: kid like and yeah and, and like we never see kevin be rude to any of them like yeah they just hate him because he can't do anything on his own he's eight <laughs> what is yeah he like to yes and like maybe
1: we miss the backstory where while kevin was a baby the mom completely focused on him and ignored her other children but that's not kevin's fault now is it
0: no it's not and if that's the case then his mom needs to be taking up for him a little bit more and uh there needs to be consequences for being absolutely awful to a sibling. And, you know, I, I feel like this probably does happen in a lot of families. And It might be different. It might be the older sibling that, that, is, that can never get away with anything while the younger sibling can do whatever they want. You know, it could be reversed in some families. It could be the middle sibling that's dealing with that. I do
1: feel like that's kind of how it was in my family is that I was like, I... If I reacted to things badly, it was always like, well, you're more mature, so you should know better. And granted, I was a little shit, so, like, uh, (laughs) I understand now, but as a kid, I always felt like, you know, my brothers would purposely annoy me because they thought it was funny because I would overreact when they annoyed me. So it was always like I would end up getting in trouble because I overreacted, but I would always be like, but did you not see what led up to this? And my mom would be like, yeah, but, like you're more mature than they are. So you have to make better decisions. And I'd be like, well, that's boo.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I I do feel like there's always a sibling that's doing that being the one that's like picking on them. And there's a sibling that read that, that just deals with it and deals with it and then reacts in a big way when they can't take it anymore. And, you know, I think, I think that is pretty common. Uh, And I think how the parents respond is really varies and kind of makes or breaks the situation. But also, I you know, I feel like a lot of kids feel like that's happening. And maybe this was played up like this to make kids relate to it.
1: Yeah, because I feel like it's it's an exaggerated version that kids will be like, well, I understand how Kevin feels. <laughs> yeah. Been there, yeah. kid.
0: But the, the exaggerated version, because I think that always happens a little bit in families with siblings. But I think the played up version probably also does happen but in that case, it is abusive. That that's right. where it gets to a very toxic point. Right. And, you know, there are very much toxic families out there. They they exist. All that being said, I 1 million percent do not blame Kevin for being absolutely elated to find that a family is missing. Because right. he's because like, Because I finally. feel like he
1: finally gets like a moment of like peace, honestly. Yes. Because the whole time that we see him, he is in trouble or he's being like accosted by his siblings and cousins and it's like he probably is just like cool to have a moment where nobody's bitching him out
0: and you know this is why i kind of uh i feel like it's always important for parents to spend quality time with just like one-on-one time with their individual kids because it, you know, I, there were times where my mom would, you know, take just me to the mall or something and, and not my sister or just my sister somewhere and not me. And I really valued that time because, you know, it's it's a moment where you kind of get all the attention. And kids need that every once in a while where Absolutely. they don't feel like they're having to fight with attention for their parents. And I think that's all Kevin wants because it does feel like this movie is very much about the relationship between him and his mom.
1: Yeah, because we we don't see him ever having, like, one-on-one time with either of his parents, really. And, like, the only scene where we see him with his dad, he's, like, trying to play quietly in their bedroom away from everyone. And it's, like, probably because everyone else is mean to him.
0: Yeah, no, the the whole beginning part of the movie is him. He first, so his mom's on the phone with someone just chatting, and he comes in and wants to talk to his mom. And she's like, you know, go away, I'm on the phone. And then his dad is also like, go away, I'm busy. Like, go pack or something. And then he goes to his siblings and it's like, how do I pack? I've never done this before. And they're (laughs) all like, you can't do anything yourself, idiot. And he's little. (laughs) I just,
1: uh, so... It also if an, eight, if an eight-year-old packs their suitcase to go to a foreign country you're gonna have to redo it at the end of the day anyway
0: <laughs> yeah for a variety of reasons like i feel like when i packed for trips as a kid i put in the most random stuff i didn't need uh because i'm just like what would i want at the beach and it, it's just a bunch of like toys and things and it's not actually like underwear you know, like socks and underwear you know right your kid's kevin's gonna, gonna that show up to france
1: himself. with no underwear other than the ones he has on he's gonna be commando yes. his whole those trip if he packs his own <laughs> suitcase
0: yeah exactly and so like help your kid pack perhaps like teach them how to do it or unless an older sibling to do it but actually make sure they do it and just don't go do it yourself idiot because it seems like the the parents are just completely overwhelmed we're not overwhelmed because she's on the phone with a friend. Clearly, she feels she has the time to do that, and then the dad's just kind of doing nothing. And I was gonna uh, say, what the well dad? I,
1: what is the dad doing? Shaving his beard, or so, like packing a razor? I don't know. But
0: yeah, it's <sighs> not helpful. And so, someone should have been helping him. All the while, while this is happening, Harry and Marv, a pair of cat burglars who <laughs> go by the name the Wet Bandits, have been breaking into other vacant houses. And they target the McAllister's house. Kevin temporarily tricks them into thinking his parents are still home, but eventually Harry and Marv realize it's only Kevin there. Kevin overhears them discussing plans to break into the McAllister residence on Christmas Eve and sets his house with a series of booby traps, and then, you know, antics ensue.
1: Fun story, I thought his name was Merv for like, until like 2014. (laughs) Is Merv even a name? I don't think it is, but I thought it was uh, Merv. That's my Merv? firstborn child's name.
0: <laughs> You're gonna make it a name,
1: uh, Merv, with a V. <laughs> like I thought it was like Murph and Marv put together. Merv,
0: Merv. I kind of like that'd be a good name for like a cat, probably. Aww. Cute.
1: <laughs> the Wet Bandits.
0: Yeah, I love the Wet Bandits, and of course in the sequel they become the Sticky Bandits, but that's... <laughs> we'll get there. I,
1: I, I love these two. they, they They're are, fun. They're fun, and also I get why they would target the McAllisters. They seem rich as hell. Uh, yeah. Also, you know how this whole <laughs> whole scenario would have been solved? Um, I how? know for a fact that these rich-ass McAllisters have at least one minimum wage employee between all of them who would have been in the town for the holiday because they couldn't leave so like in real life the McAllister mom or dad has a secretary or assistant or intern who could have ran over and grabbed Kevin real quick
0: oh yeah no I I was like even thinking you know do they not have friends in the whole greater Chicago metropolitan area, they don't have a single friend, neighbor, distant relative, or, like you said, employee, <laughs> you know, co-worker, anyone. Right. You know, the neighbor guy who they think is a serial killer. <laughs> they can't all be in Paris. Like, somebody has yeah. to be in this neighborhood. Right. Someone besides, because the, eventually they call the police, which I'll get into that more later, but they, they call the police, which is like the maybe the last thing you should do because you did something very almost you know one could say criminally negligent <laughs> right
1: you don't want the police to know about
0: this <laughs> right right and if they weren't like rich and white i think most people would assume if you call um, the police they're gonna call cps uh or home,
1: home alone is a very different movie if the McAllisters are a non-white poor family living in an apartment somewhere
0: yeah, and the police would immediately it would be a situation where they would be framed as criminals and like how the newspaper would frame that story I was gonna would be say it would else. be
1: I can see the headline now, it would be their mugshot, first of all, because they would have been arrested, and it would have been like family leaves son alone, doesn't have food, nearly dies because of negligence. Like Right. It would be extreme, the reaction would be harsh and uh, they would be framed as the worst parents on earth.
0: So, and you know what? I was gonna talk about it later. Let's just talk about it now. The way this movie frames police in this universe, which is not entire. So th- the way it frames it is that every time the police are contacted about something, they're just kind of useless and they don't. They have no response to it. They're just like, uh, you want us to do what? Send send uh someone over to check on them. <laughs> um, th- like they they don't know how. <laughs> and so it's not entirely off base to think that that could be a thing that could happen but I feel like because they're they're wealthier they there might have been a better response but also I don't know it probably depends depends on the police force depends on the whatever but all we know is that if it were a less wealthy and or family of color that the police would have had a much worse reaction
1: oh yeah um Kevin would have been like taken from his family as soon as they got there, if yeah. if he wasn't gunned down, which,
0: like, if... Right. Oh, yeah, that could have happened, Could have
1: happened if if he were not his little white self.
0: Yeah. And speaking of the burglars, so we got Harry and Marv and the booby traps and everything, and... So there is a YouTube video by the channel Renegade Cut that you actually sent me, Kirsten, and I, love I really channel. enjoyed this video.
1: I love, all the, I love all of the videos from this channel, but I love this one especially.
0: This one is very good. I recommend looking it up. It's called Home Alone White Suburban Revenge Fantasy, <laughs> and it's, it's very fascinating.
1: <laughs> if you love heavy-handedness, you're going to really dig into this. <laughs> Oh yeah, like it's
0: (laughs) and the guy and the guy, just like us, gives a disclaimer, like, I love Home Alone. I'm don't come for me. I'm just, you know, just pointing some things out. And basically he argues that Home Alone is exactly that, a white suburban revenge fantasy that is very much in line with castle doctrine and stand your ground and all that stuff. And basically castle doctrine is the set of laws in many states that basically mean that you can defend your personal property even if you know if someone's just on your property and not harming you directly. If someone's just trespassing, they might not have intent to harm you, but they're on your property and therefore you have the right to defend your property according to Castle Doctrine. And then also in line with Stand Your Ground, which uh, I think we all mostly know a little bit more about that from, Cases like the Trayvon Martin case and, and things like that. So he's very much in line with that kind of thing where he's defending his castle and... This is my home. I have to defend it. Right, right. Even though Harry and Marv don't actually have violent intent. They're just petty thieves. And just in general, the things he does to defend himself, even even if it is defending himself, you know, they, they become wildly unnecessarily violent. Um and most of the things he does probably would kill them if not kill then severely incapacitate them. It's it's unnecessary. <laughs>
1: he could have literally burnt them to death at several instances.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, he like they they could have broken their back, they could have they could have just gotten their heads cracked open just like at so many points they would have just been done right then. But Kevin because he knew it was coming, he could have I don't know, called the police, which I think is what most suburban white kids are kind of taught to do in that situation. And clearly he's not opposed to that because later in the movie, he after he does all the things to them, he does call the police on them, but not before, you know, torturing them first.
1: Not before he hurts them a lot.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so he also, if he didn't want to go to the police, uh, which, you know, would be understandable, he could have, he went to a church that same night before he set all the traps and he could have told anyone at that church, He and then the neighbor guy, who he thought was a serial killer, but actually is just a quiet old man, is there and they have a heart-to-heart moment. He could have told him right then that that was happening, and he, like, he could have helped him, you know? The-
1: <laughs> he could have literally just sat in the church for the rest of the night, like right if you if you are a child by yourself and you go to a church where there are a lot of adults around you could say to them hey my parents left me for christmas and um i feel like at least one of them is going to uh help you in that situation and especially if you say my parents left me alone they're in paris and two guys were at my house saying they were going to rob me later
0: (laughs) yeah right
1: (laughs) (laughs) adults are going to respond to that
0: (laughs) right even if even if they're like okay what's this thing about someone's gonna rob your house even if they don't believe that at the very least they're gonna be like where are your parents right Uh, because you know adults if if a kid is unaccompanied kid comes up to you you gotta kind of do something with that most adults aren't gonna just be like um no thanks (laughs) i'm not dealing with this
1: clerk literally says to him like are you here with your mom and he lies for what reason like right
0: could have gotten some help (laughs) yeah Uh, he,
1: he could have literally like told that grocery store clerk and she would have i'm sure called people because she seemed
0: genuinely concerned about this kid right and so he could have at any point done that but also I think this is part of that theme that, you know, you get, I think I mentioned in one episode where the, this is a popular theme in like rolled doll books, where adults are all not to be trusted and they're all kind of corrupt and bad, but you start to get it in the 90s with more kid-centered media where kids are just like, nobody understands me and all that stuff and adults just don't get it. Parents just don't understand. <laughs> so I think it's kind of in line with that logic where he just thinks that all adults are going to be non-trustworthy. And then, you know, it would be a safe assumption that if he did tell an adult that he, it would be him sitting in a police station for hours on end and, and instead of in his own house. But also, I think me as an eight-year-old, if my parents weren't there, granted, I wasn't wishing my family away or anything like that. <laughs> but I would be scared out of my mind and I would, I don't know, go to the neighbors or something. Cause but I also didn't think my neighbors were serial killers. So Right. I I would have one
1: number in like the old fashioned, you know, moms used to have address books in the nineties. I would have one number in the address book that I could call and be like, um, hey, you know what's weird? Uh, my family left me. Can you imagine getting that call as like an adult like a child that you know calls you and is like, "Hey, my family went to Paris and left me behind." Like how I ever go over there? You go over and you get him, and then you're like, "I'm never talking to your mom again." Like she's the worst. <laughs> right?
0: <laughs> there. On uh, purpose? Um, oh yeah, it, be- God, it begs a lot what? of questions. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it basically, moral of the story: he did eventually call the police, but he could have just skipped like ten steps and like a lot of weird Rube Goldberg machines, like sadistic. <laughs> mechanisms of torture and just call the police so it also makes you wonder is Kevin have? does he have violent tendencies I don't know <laughs>
1: uh, I mean like he seems to enjoy it too much because he yeah. does at points like lure them into traps specifically to hurt them
0: <laughs> right and like I think the way it's framed is kind of like well they're they're criminals they deserve it But, you know, I I think that's also, that also speaks to the way this is kind of painting criminality from a very white suburban middle-class standpoint of, you know, criminals are, are like cartoonish bad guy villains and not, and you know, the truth of it is, and I got this from that YouTube video I mentioned, most economic crimes are committed with economic motives. And so, most of the time there's a financial reason Reason, whereas uh harry and marv are just kind of staking out rich neighborhoods all day for the fun of it because <laughs> they want a big loot but it doesn't really say why <laughs> um what they don't
1: tell you is that marv was actually trying to uh pay his mother's medical debts because she had to have a life-saving operation and is now going to lose her house because of it and so he's trying to steal enough money to get her medical debts paid off and help her pay her mortgage don't you feel bad now kevin
0: (laughs) kevin knows nothing of (laughs) the medical industrial complex he's been insured his whole life
1: this little privileged prick (laughs) Uh, but another i uh, okay so back to kevin doesn't trust any adults this is at the height of like stranger danger propaganda which has been debunked extremely thoroughly now to uh, not have been effective to make kids extremely paranoid and to completely ignore the fact that most kids are abused by members of the family or adults that they know and trust and that strangers weren't really the problem but it it did do a good job of making all '90s kids very afraid of strangers. So
0: yeah, yeah, it's most likely not going to be like a stranger in a van. So, I, sometimes it is, but not not as often as, like you said, members of your own family.
1: Very, very rare to have a stranger assault you, but Kevin may have been afraid to say anything because of that whole "don't talk to strangers" mentality that we all grew up with if we grew up in the late '80s and '90s.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But, you know, if this wasn't the plot, then we wouldn't have gotten, like, 30 minutes of pure slapstick physical comedy. It, Which, is, it God... is my favorite part of the movie.
1: I'm over yeah. here like, yeah, it's gross torture. And I'm like, yeah, I can't wait to see Marv's head get caught on fire with a blowtorch. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and you know, Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern, who play the Wet Bandits, are just amazing at physical comedy and it seems like there are a lot of really cool practical effects at play and so you know i don't want to downplay the fact that there are people involved that are very talented at making this look funny and good but
1: she's a damn treasure and we all (laughs) need to remember he
0: he like i i don't think he he wasn't in a lot of comedy roles before this was he uh
1: my cousin vinny is the one that comes to mind
0: immediately yeah i but he he's good at it you know yeah, he
1: has really good comedic timing i think and he also just seems like a little tough guy which is kind of inherently funny
0: <laughs> yeah no this, this definitely played in the trope of like a short person who is kind of the boss of the operation and a smarter grumpier one and then a tall gangly dummy as their partner so
1: <laughs> the uh himbo <laughs> yeah the himbo you
0: could say the himbo although uh himbos <laughs> respect women and as we learned the sequel he does not oh yeah that's true i forgot about it i forgot about that you know we'll use that as a segue into the sequel so in the sequel the wet bandits have escaped from prison and run off to new york city to pursue a life of crime there because you know that's what people who commit crimes do they just you know want to move to a new city to pursue more crime once they escape prison. But they change their name to the Sticky Bandits because Marv starts wrapping his hand up with double-sided sticky tape and sticking into Salvation Army donation buckets. And so at this point, they're just cartoonishly evil. And because of the big heist that they're trying to pull off is that they're trying to rob a big toy store that's kind of... I think it's supposed to be FAO Schwartz or something. But the store, it's a big plot point that they're donating a bunch of money to charity. And so they're stealing from charity is the way it's being portrayed uh so at this point they're just evil for the sake of being evil
1: right they have no sympathetic traits they're just really bad people committing like the worst thing you can do on christmas they have zero regard for anyone They're they were like caricatures in home alone one but in home alone two they're like whatever's beyond that
0: Yeah, they might as well have a handlebar mustache or something (laughs) and be twirling it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And so I guess backing up a little bit, the plot of the sequel, for anyone out there who does not know, is that the next Christmas after the one from the first movie, the McAllisters are going to Florida now and they make sure Kevin is there when they are leaving the house and are in the vans. But then he gets lost in the airport and gets on the wrong plane. And and how that happens is he asks to look at his dad's bag and he's going through it looking for batteries for his little tape recorder that's his current favorite toy. And he's, you know, wa- doing that thing where he's walking and, you know, looking through the bag. And then his family is way ahead of him and they're, they, they're running because they're late again because they overslept again. And <laughs> they're running towards a plane. And then eventually he loses them, but he's looking down the bag, so he doesn't know. And then he sees another man with the same like haircut and jacket as his dad. And then he starts following him, and that guy's running. And that guy gets on a plane to New York. And then Kevin just bumps into the lady at the at the checkpoint, and all the boarding passes just fall. And he's looking for his boarding pass, and he's like, "My family is on that plane." And and she's like, "Are you sure?" And he said, "Yeah, my dad just got on." And she said, "Okay." you i'll will board you but you gotta find your family immediately and once they get in there he sees the guy that he thinks is his dad up ahead and he's like all right that's my dad and then they leave him and i point all of that out to point out that this is a very pre-9-11 movie uh yeah
1: i was just thinking that i was like oh this would never happen today home alone 2 is like a movie that cannot reoccur also yeah they wouldn't just
0: let a kid on a plane
1: also my mom always my mom likes the like jokey part of this movie but she kind of hates this movie as a whole because she's like really I bought it the first time that it was an accident but this cannot happen twice she's like this family do not need to have children because they cannot be negligent. With <laughs> yeah. This time like it's like once is a mistake, twice is basically on purpose. Like
0: yeah. Two times yeah. is
1: too much. <laughs>
0: Uh, So he gets on a plane to New York City, and, he, and because he ended up with his dad's bag, he has all of his dad's money, and, and he goes and stays at the Plaza Hotel. So he picks <laughs> this really expensive hotel, and then the staff at the hotel are understandably suspicious of him. They're like, why is this kid checking in on his own? He has a pretty convincing story. But then, you know, Rob Schneider, the bellhop, takes his stuff up, and he kind of is implying he wants a tip. And then Kevin gives him a stick of gum. And in the same way that in the first movie, he ordered that pizza and then didn't tip the kid, and then when the kid was like, "Hey, cheapskate," he played the clip of the movie where it's like, "I'm gonna get, I'm gonna give you to the count of ten to get your sorry Keister out of here," or whatever he says, and then and then the movie plays gunshot, so he's thinking that like the kid is thinking he's getting shot at, and so the same similar thing happens where he stiffs the bellhop, and then later the bellhop it, it makes some snide remark about like. Oh well, I guess I'm not gonna get a tip. And he said, he whips out this big wad of cash, and he's like, "Well, I guess you don't want this then." And he, so he knows, and then he shuts the door, so he knows that a tip is necessary, but then chooses not to. So, uh, so you know, being ten isn't is an excuse anymore.
1: He already has an inherited air of superiority and is a dick to service people.
0: Yeah, and obviously, it runs in the family.
1: Yeah, it obviously is inherited. You don't get that kind of shitty attitude unless you see it from an adult.
0: Right, exactly. And so uh, the the staff, they're kind of portrayed as one of the bad guys because they're, you know, suspicious.
1: I always have a problem with this because the Tim Curry character, who is amazing, by the way, I love Tim Curry, and he does play a very good bad guy. But I feel like that character would be so much more concerned, like, You think that this kid stole a credit card and you're going to handle that with, like, I'm going to send your little ass to jail instead of being like, um, kid, do you need some help? Like, I feel like a real concierge would handle that in such, like, a more professional manner of, like, obviously something weird is happening here and I need to investigate without freaking this kid
0: out. Right. And, like, his reaction is to call the police and essentially evict him from this place and then i don't know put him on the street uh he's a kid by himself and so when the mom eventually does get there she yells at them which kind of makes sense but also you know that wouldn't have happened in the first place if you know she hadn't left him behind twice
1: (laughs) 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 maybe it wouldn't have happened if you made sure that your kids boarded with you like what dad doesn't check to make sure that his kid is still there with him in the airport
0: Right and like they do they do a head count once they land. They always do this where they don't notice he's gone until they've landed. Why are you waiting till you land to do a head count at the airport? Do if it you before you If you have this you many board. kids, you have to do multiples. You have to keep checking in. Or better yet, stop counting all the kids and then have each of the parents count their own kids and that way Kate and John are just counting Oh, are their names really John and Kate? No, Peter is Peter McAllister, I think. Peter and Kate, count just their four kids, and, and then they're not trying to count 11 or however many kids.
1: Right. Uh. Yeah, keep track of everybody. Again, as someone who is a member of a huge family that has done a lot of stuff together, it's not hard to keep up with everyone.
0: Uh. Yeah, buddy system. Yeah, Anything. we we were always doing, like,
1: uh self-checks. Like, hey, I haven't seen this person in a while. Where are they? And then you make sure they're with you.
0: Yeah, I think it just goes to show how uh, much... Kevin is kind of ignored in this family
1: yeah he's their little afterthought their little surprise baby that they forget about Oof.
0: yeah and so the other thing that's happening in this movie is that Harry and Marv spot Kevin in New York and they're like oh no it's him (laughs) and they're basically aside from in addition to trying to rob the FAO Schwartz dupe they are trying to kill Kevin (laughs) because that kid tortured them a year ago
1: and did straight up torture them so they have a little bit of a vendetta against him.
0: <laughs> yeah and i'm like i'm not saying it's good to kill a child i'm not saying that i'm not don't come for me i'm not saying that but their anger is a bit understandable um yeah because, uh, yeah and they show that he, that that uh joe pesci his character still has a branding on his hand from the the hot doorknob because their doorknob has an m on it and so he's he literally was branded that's oof
1: that's so messed up
0: it is kind of messed up uh
1: but also is it is it american airlines that has the plug in this movie i think think it is yeah i think it's american because marv has the best line in all of cinema when he says american doesn't fly to the promised land little buddy (laughs)
0: <laughs> I, love it. I love that line so much. Oh my god! Well, I remember it, it is American Airlines because whenever all those, you whenever the whole mix-up happened, I was watching this with Katie, and she was like, "This doesn't bode well for American Airlines, where they're just letting this unaccompanied minor <laughs> get on the plane by himself."
1: Yeah, I can't believe they let the they look they let their operation look this dumb in a movie.
0: right and they might have even paid for it who knows
1: (laughs) probably if you get mentioned by name and they have a picture of your airplane you're probably paying for it they maybe didn't look at the plot of this
0: (laughs) (laughs) it's like yeah sign us up home alone that's a big franchise (laughs) i do love the plot with the pigeon lady though i think that that's a good plot
1: that's a very sweet a
0: sweet moment yeah, and another thing, and the same thing with the first movie where there's this adult that he's initially very scared of that's eventually just a misunderstood person that's been judged by a lot of people and he ends up befriending them and having a heart-to-heart moment with them, which is very sweet and I think very much like the heart of the movie. But uh, the one last thing I'm going to touch on is the third movie. <laughs> so some people don't even like to acknowledge it, but I'm here to defend it. To be
1: fair, I've only seen it Once I think and I was a child because my grandma bought us like the VHS tape and we watched it at her house and like only her house like she kept it with her so I've only seen it maybe a couple of times and I was a little kid so I don't remember 90% of what happens the only thing that I really distinctly remember is that it's not Macaulay Culkin.
0: Yeah, I think that's the, the main thing that does stick out in your head. Because it's not the same cast. But the other thing is that it's not a Christmas movie. It, it, it takes place in January. And so for me growing up, it was a snow day kind of movie.
1: Aw, sweet.
0: Yeah, it it, it actually, it, it does, there's a lot of snow in this movie. And so first of all, it stars the kid that plays, what is it, Max Keebler and, and Keeble. Max, Max Keeble and Max Keeble's big move. So it stars that kid when he's really little and he might even be cuter than Macaulay Culkin. (laughs) I I know that's controversial, but he is adorable. And also, it stars a teenage Scarlett Johansson. What? Yeah! She plays his older sister and the way they introduce her, because he has two older siblings, an older brother that's basically a Buzz duplicate, and then ScarJo, who is kind of a combination of the other siblings in that movie. They're also mean to him. And... You know, or, like, he's just, he's a, he's a little baby. And there was one point where the, he does, like, the iconic scream, like Macaulay Culkin does, where he goes, ah! And they're both like, did he slam the toilet seat down on his thing again? And I remembered that very vividly from when I watched disturbing. the first Very disturbing. Yeah um (laughs) uh so but how you meet scarlett Johansson's character is that you enter her room and she's on her you know very old computer and or old to us and there's ska music playing (laughs) because this is in 1997 ska was all the rage with the kids (laughs) Mm -hmm. and uh they're still rich in this movie they they do have a really big house they're not again because
1: poor people would have been arrested so you got to make this family rich
0: yeah. And it's still a John Hughes movie. It's not, I don't think it's Chris Columbus, but it is still John Hughes. And so they're rich. And it does play out very differently. One is that it's not Christmas. And the other thing is that it's a whole different reasoning. It's not the Wet Bandits or the Sticky Bandit. It's just not Harry and Marv at all. Basically, it starts out like a spy movie where it, it, it you know, it flashes Hong Kong at the bottom of the screen and it starts <laughs> off there. Where there is basically this these four spies, these international super spies that are supposed to transport a a chip that has it basically is a super weapon that can shoot off missiles and then the what? missiles can't be stopped. It's like the stakes are way bigger this time <laughs> uh, so uh. these are cap which is kind of what I like about it is because it doesn't have the thing where it's you know a very suburban idea of thieves and burglars and things like that dirty that burglars exactly it's not that it's you know people who are actually dangerous and so they transport it they fly it to San Francisco in a race car a toy like rc car and they what happens is at the airport they swap the, they accidentally swap the bag with somebody and so this old lady gets a hold of it and then they track tracked down the taxi driver that took her home and they're like, where, where did she go? And he told her the address, but and he's like big Tudor style house, you know, neighborhood It's the only driveway unshoveled and they go to the neighborhood. All the driveways are shoveled and uh, all the houses look the same because this is suburbia.
1: Uh-huh. Suburb. So they- the suburban neighborhoods in the nineties, they all look the same.
0: Yes, <laughs> truly. And so What happens is the lady that gets it is this grouchy old neighbor who pays Alex, the protagonist of this movie, to shovel her driveway. And this kid has to be six or seven. He's little. And then basically the movie starts out and he has chicken pox. So he is staying home from school and his mom is trying to work from home because both of his parents, you know, they actually imply what they do for a living. They have some kind of fancy financial type job. And his dad has to go on a business trip and his mom is home with him while he has chicken pox, but she gets a call saying, you have to come into the office. And she says, I, you know, I, I can't, my kid's sick. And he says, basically come in or you're fired. And she, and there's this line where she's like, you know, you're making me choose between taking care of my sick kid and making a house payment right now. And I really resent it. And I'm like, yeah, Yeah,
1: I feel like this is a really relatable movie to 2020. I think uh, a lot of parents are in this uh, scenario right now.
0: Right. And so um, the parents are more sympathetic in this one.
1: Yeah, I definitely understand leaving your kid
0: like... For like an hour. Yeah,
1: I I feel like this is like something that all parents have done at some point or the other.
0: Yeah, and so there's a few days in a row where she has to go into the office and she asks the grouchy old neighbor lady to check in on him every once in a while, and uh, which seems reasonable, right? So he shovels this lady's driveway and there, there's this one time where she pays him with the race car. She's like, my bags got mixed up at the airport. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with a stupid car, so you can have it. And he... plays with the race car a lot and uses it later for spying on the spies but the point is he keeps seeing the spies in people's houses and calling the police and the police keep coming and they're like there's no one in here and this is a serious thing son you can't call the cops because you think something's wrong when there's not so it just happens over and over again where he keeps calling the police for like quote-unquote false alarms but if there is something going on
1: oh this plot is a lot more believable than i remember it being
0: i mean it, it is it is a little outrageous but also it's within the realm of reason it's not too wild
1: it's much more believable than a family living leaving their kid two years in a row on christmas
0: <laughs> yeah at the end when his mom is like i'm sorry it's a lot more sympathetic it's a lot more like Oh, this actually is very sweet, and and then the event and his older older siblings get to see what he's done that he has gotten these international enemies of the state, you know, apprehended, and they're like, "Oh, cool!" And they they gain some respect for him, and it's a it's a nice moment, I guess. Although that shouldn't be, you know, necessarily the reason why they.
1: You don't uh, have to uh, earn the love of your family
0: members. You shouldn't have to. Right. Right. Uh... Yeah. (laughs) Um. But anyway, that's my defense of that movie. I would say that some of the hijinks are even more violent and outrageous and, like, should kill them in this movie, but you know, why not? You might as well. That's why we all
1: tune in, is to see the torture. We're all there to watch the torture unfold. Yeah, (laughs) that's what we're here for.
0: (laughs) Uh, And Uh, At the beginning, they steal someone's dog, so, you know, maybe they deserve it.
1: Whatever befalls you, you deserve at that point.
0: Yeah, they just, like, steal someone's dog out of their yard, and then uh the dog does get back to its owners though don't thank worry goodness. thank you but basically the moral of the story here is that maybe the third one is the dark horse we didn't expect but also you know the first two are classics and everything but uh if you really unpack it I, I would say my problem is more with John Hughes than with Home Alone specifically
1: and just sort of the white rich suburban model of american society
0: it's very much that did we ruin this did we ruin home alone
1: um i think so i will say that i said earlier incorrectly that marv was the himbo in this and he clearly isn't because he is as we said disrespectful to that blonde lady so uh i do know who the real himbo is do you want to know who the real himbo is
0: it it can't be buzz it's not buzz
1: It's John Candy's character. The polka guy.
0: Yeah, I didn't even get into that, where the mom, in order to get home, because there's no direct flight to Chicago, she flies to Scranton and then hitches a ride with a polka band led by John Candy. He's the himbo.
1: He's the real himbo, because he he just, like, goes out of his way to help this lady, even though she seems, like, very crazy in the airport. She's very mean to the checkout person, and he correctly assesses that she's just very stressed out and helps her because he is yeah. a
0: himbo exactly and i would also say maybe the pizza boy's a himbo
1: yeah he did not deserve the treatment he received from that family. no
0: no and and not once but twice
1: <sighs> also maybe the worst character in this isn't the wet bandits who try to kill kevin it's actually uncle frank who is a weird pervert and I hate Oh yeah, him.
0: Uncle Frank is awful and I think we can all agree on that. Worse than his parents who are negligent. He's worse than negligent. He's just awful and mean and he he's probably the most aside from Buzz, the most verbally abusive to him. Yes. So, we hate Uncle Frank. Yeah. Probably the family member that's racist at Thanksgiving um there's no direct evidence of that aside from just a general feeling a just gut a feeling.
1: vibe that he gives off is that if yeah. you if you say anything he's going to have something really racist to say back to it like no matter right. what it is like no yeah. matter what it is
0: mm-hmm. and then and his i would say kevin that is probably more subtly racist and he, he's probably like you know i don't <laughs> i don't like trump very much but he certainly has helped my 401k you know uh, he, actually yeah.
1: i feel like the what are their names again peter and kate are there yeah are their names i feel like they're the parents from get out at the beginning
0: of the movie
1: oh my god when they're like yeah. i would have voted for obama a
0: third time yeah or like the, or like the people <laughs> from uh knives out where they oh yeah quote hamilton to, <laughs> to show their <laughs> their uh their wokeness card the
1: <laughs> yeah to fit in with their polite rich friends they have to appear woke while secretly voting for
0: things that hurt people of color <laughs> yes yeah exactly and there's so there's different levels of bad people here so that's home alone thanks for making it to the end i think we we did we may have ruined us a little bit but I mean, it's, it's still a good movie. It's still, it's still a good movie. It mostly holds up. But this movie is fun.
1: I mean, it is fun to see Marv
0: get hit in the
1: face with that iron. I <laughs> I don't know why it's fun, but it is. Like, that's probably a dark, twisted part of all of our personalities. But well, it's it the same logic incredible.
0: as Looney Tunes, you know?
1: Right. Sometimes you want that.
0: While you're rewatching that this holiday season, as many of us are, keep all this in mind uh view all your uh your media critically that is our only message our only instruction for
1: you and um merry christmas
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah Merry, merry christmas uh next time we will be back with annie which you know has mild christmas vibes but it's gonna be more of a new year's thing for us you could say
1: this is the this is the episode we've been building to. I feel like this is our season finale. Annie is our season finale.
0: Yes. Yeah, cuz it was one of the ones that kind of inspired us to, to do this. Aside from that and Casper, I think were the ones where we were really motivated to to do it. Right. So, uh we started with Casper, we're going to end with Annie and then we'll we'll be back in 2021. 2021
1: with some bright new fresh takes on all of the old classics.
0: Yup. So uh, for now, good riddance. Good riddance.